Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back to New Books in Science Fiction and Fantasy. On today's show, I'm speaking with David B. Coe, who, for fans of his Thief Taker series, also goes, Welcome back to New Books in Science Fiction and Fantasy. On today's show, I'm speaking with David B. Coe, who, for fans of his Thief Taker series, also goes by the moniker D.B. Jackson. Uh, Hey, David, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Rob. It's great to be with you. Now, you've had two books come out in the last few months, Dead Man's Reach, which is the fourth, and I understand for now maybe the final volume in the Thief Taker Chronicles, and that came out from Tor Books, but you've also had His Father's Eyes, which is the second in a series about a magic-wielding private eye published by Bain, also come out very recently. So, so I want to congratulate you on that, that singular achievement. Thank you. I appreciate that. But I imagine, I imagine it's thrilling to have two books come out within such a short time, within a month of each other, basically. But I, w- I want to ask you if it's also a bit mind-blowing, because I imagine that means you have to make double the effort to promote them, or, or maybe not. I was wondering, maybe there's an, an economy of scale working in, to your favor, and you, you get to just have more visibility all around and meet with the public who's interested in both books. Well, you know, it's a great question, and it's kind of a mixed bag. Uh, on the one hand, I was able to combine my promotional efforts a little bit. I was able to make a bunch of appearances. I did a virtual tour where I was going around to review sites and blog sites of friends and things of that sort. And I was able to combine those appearances and, and promote both books at the same time. So I was appearing as David B. Coe and D.B. Jackson. On the other hand, I have separate blogs for each name, separate websites for each name, separate Twitter accounts for each name, separate Facebook pages for each name. (laughs) And so I find myself doing a lot of dual posts all the time. And over the course of that, I guess it was probably an eight-week span where I was really promoting the books actively all through July when Dead Man's Reach came out and August when His Father's Eyes came out. Uh, And I figured out the other day that over that span, I published 35,000 words of promotional material, just interviews and blog posts and character interviews and little sketches and stuff like that. Um, and so I think having two books come out, I, I really did double the effort. That was more work than I've ever done on a promotional campaign before. So I'm not sure if it saved me work or not. Uh, it was probably a little bit less than double the work it would have been, but certainly it was way more than simply promoting a single book at a time. Oh, wow. I mean, it's very impressive. It's almost like you did a novella of write, worth of writing in all the promotional material. Yes. And was it hard to sometimes keep track of which book you were talking about? A little bit. I mean, as I say, I was able to combine some of the, some of the posts, but there would be times when I would do uh, a character interview, say, of, of Ethan Kale, the lead character in the Thief Taker Chronicles, uh, and really focus on those books. And then the next day I'd be doing something on, on Justice Fearson instead. And there was one post I wrote that was really tremendous fun, and I don't remember where it went up. But I did an interview with both characters at the same time. 
and they were kind of ganging up on me and, and getting mad at me for all the terrible things I do to them in books. And that was a really fun post to write, and it got a great response from people who read it. Oh, I love that idea. Well, I'll link to it on the podcast page. It sounds like one of those uh, articles that the New York Times sometimes does where they pull two people with some kind, something in common or maybe not even and have, have them sit down and have lunch together and then you get to eavesdrop on their, their conversation. Right, right. Well, tell me a little bit about your career and particularly your interest in writing about uh, characters who, who can do magic. You know, I started being interested in fantasy literature when I was 11 years old, I was away at sleepaway camp, and my parents had mentioned to my head counselor that, oh, they'd really like David to get into drama. He's, he's such a performer all the time. Try to get him into plays. So somebody came to me and said, your parents want you to try out for plays. There's a play going on this week. You should try out for it. So I did. And I got the part of this bizarrely named character, Bilbo Baggins, in a production of something called The Hobbit that I'd never heard of before. And read through the script and acted in the play and we rehearsed all week and performed at the end of the week. And by the end of it, I was totally hooked on magic and characters and alternate worlds and the idea of wizards and all of it. And from that time forward, I wanted to do nothing but read fantasy and, and then soon after discovered science fiction as well and fell in love with that. And I'd always been a writer. I wrote my first book and I put that in air quotes when I was six years old, uh, it was called Jim the Talking Fish, and it was a terrible, terrible book made worse by my illustrations. Um, but it was also a whole lot of fun to write, and I realized early on that writing stories was something I loved. So by the time I was 11 or 12 years old, I had fallen in love with writing and fallen in love with fantasy. And it, it's really been with a couple of small detours, one of them resulting in a history PhD, that's been the track I've been following ever since. My career started around the time I was finishing my PhD dissertation and realizing I didn't want to be a historian for the rest of my life. And my wife said, you know, you've got some time before you have to apply for academic jobs, and you've been talking to me about writing a novel since the day I met you. So you've got some time. Write a novel. And I started working on the book that would become Children of Amrit, my first publication, and sometime in March, was offered a job teaching history on a Thursday, heard from an editor at Tor who was interested in buying Children of Amarid the next day, Friday, and they both gave me until Monday to decide what I was going to do. And uh, in the end, at the end of that weekend, I chose writing fantasy and really haven't looked back since. There was a lot in there, everything you just described. I mean, one of the things that I was struck with was how influential the play at camp was, and I thought about all the arts programming that tends to get cut from, is the first thing they cut from schools, and how, you know, that that small experience, really, in the, in the scheme of things, basically planted the seed that's blossomed into so many books and, and given pleasure to so many of your readers. Well, thank you, and that's, and that's absolutely true. I've, um, I believe very strongly in arts education and actually I mean all of it I, I was a I was in plays from that time forward through all my high school years and I don't think that I would be nearly as successful at getting up in front of audiences and giving readings of my work or speaking publicly about writing or any of the things I do as a matter of course in my professional life were it not for the exposure to the arts I had all through my public school education from the time I was in sixth grade to the time I was in twelfth grade. 
And the fact that you have a PhD in history, I mean, that that's a natural segue to talk a little bit about Ethan Kale and the Thief Taker series and, and Dead Man's Reach, which is your most recent installment in that series. Maybe the best thing to do right now is just to it, maybe describe a little bit about the story. Tell tell listeners about Ethan Kale and what he does and when he's living. And then and then maybe I was going to ask you about what research you, you might have done, because it's it's also a historical novel, as it is also a fantasy novel about magic. Sure, sure. Essentially, the Thief Taker novels are a series of standalone mysteries set against the backdrop of events leading up to the American Revolution. Uh, so the first book, Thief Taker, is set in the summer of 1765, and the opening scene coincides with the Stamp Act riots when Bostonians took to the streets and destroyed the homes of British customs officials and, and political leaders in protest of the Stamp Act, which we all remember from our, from our uh, secondary school history books. And what I've done is I've inserted a fictional murder into that very real historical event. Uh, and my lead character, Ethan Kale, is a thief taker, which is essentially the 18th century equivalent of a, uh, of a private detective. And there were, in fact, thief-takers, although they were much more common in uh, Europe, specifically in London, than they ever were in the New World. But so Ethan is a thief-taker, and he's also a conjurer. He can cast spells. And he's casting these spells at a time in colonial history when people were still being hanged as witches. And so he lives in constant fear of being hanged as a witch. And so he has to keep his magic as tightly under wraps as he can, given that he's also using it to solve crimes and keep people from being killed. Uh, and so each book, as I say, it's a standalone mystery. There's a lot of action. There's a lot of magic. There's a tremendous amount of history uh, embedded in the background work. And Ethan interacts with Samuel Adams and Thomas Hutchinson and many other historical figures. And the books are, I, I love them. They're tremendous fun to write. They really massage both sides of my inner geek uh, and I really like that. Dead Man's Reach, which is the fourth and for now final book of the series, takes place in March of 1770 and coincides with the Boston Massacre. Uh, and so you can imagine the, how fraught a time this was, you know, a time of violence and high tension between the citizenry and the, uh, and the occupying soldiers, and you insert a little magic and a couple of extra murders in there, and you've got a really, really fun story. You're a historian, so you obviously have an interest in history, but also a faith in kind of the facts. And yet you're also interested in fantasy and, and stories about magic, and you bring those two together. I just wonder when you're deciding, you know, where to insert the magic. I mean, in, in Dead Man's Reach, I know that there's a real event, you know, at the beginning where an 11-year-old boy is killed by a, a tax collector. And that's, that is actually, uh, you know, something that I understand did happen and led to fomented further hostilities among the colonists against the British but then you also kind of wove some magic in there. And I, I mean, it's very interesting. It seems like an interesting challenge that you've given yourself. Yeah, it's, it's fun, but it is, it is a tremendous challenge. And, and of all the books that I wrote for the Thief Taker series and all the short stories I've done, this book was the most difficult uh, because there is so much happening in Boston over the two weeks covered in the book and so many 
events that I need to coordinate with my fictional timeline. And for me, the secret was, I mean, it, it's funny in a way, and my, my wife makes fun of me sometimes about this, because obviously there was no magic in Boston in the 1760s and early 1770s. And as it happens, there were actually no thief takers in Boston at that time either. There were conditions that were right for thief takers. There was no established police force in Boston at that time, and so thief takers could certainly have been there, but they weren't. At least we have no record of it. And so there are two huge historical conceits on which the entire series rests. And yet, I spend an inordinate amount of time searching for these tiny little historical details to bring the verisimilitude to my story that I really want to have there because I, re I am a historian. I'm a trained historian, and I care about this stuff. And so there's this tension in my work all the time between the very broad fictional strokes that I put into the piece and these tiny little details of historical accuracy without which I wouldn't feel I had done my duty as both uh, a storyteller and a historian uh, in writing the book. Um, and that, that tension is there all the time in what I'm doing. I think for me the secret to making it all work is layering things. It's almost I, The analogy I use is making a lasagna. You put in a layer of cheese and a layer of sauce and a layer of noodles and, and repeat as necessary. And so what I try to do is I put in my fictional plot line and then I put in a layer of history and then another layer of fiction and a little bit of magic and a little more history. And my goal is to create something that is utterly seamless so that my readers can delve down into it and really not know when the history ends and the fiction begins. Fascinating. Kale, I mean, like any well-drawn protagonist, you know, he's interesting for a lot of different reasons. But one thing that kind of stood out for me is that, you know, at the opening of the book, at least, he's reluctant to choose sides in the Revolutionary War. He seems to be, you know, he's working for these merchants who are on the side of the, you know, who are aligned with the British. And his friends are colonists who are siding with the fomenting rebellion. And he's sort of in the middle going, well, the fact that Kale kind of remains a little aloof from declaring an allegiance, I, I found an interesting choice. Yeah, thank you. Um, I, I made that choice quite consciously. And actually, if you go back to Thief Taker, at the beginning of Thief Taker, Ethan is a full-blown royalist. And so what you're seeing in Dead Man's Reach with that, that kind of uncertainty is the tail end of what has been a four-book political evolution uh, that, that begins with him quite hostile to Samuel Adams and his cause because he used to be a British uh, naval officer or, a, or he was in the Navy. Uh, he was an officer. But he was, he's, he's a loyal servant of, of the crown and has always felt that way about himself. Uh, and in the second book, Thieves' Quarry, when the British occupy Boston, readers start to see that change coming. Uh, there's, there's a sense that this is, this is not what the British Empire ought to be doing, and Ethan starts to question everything. And so, as I say, there's a long evolution in his, uh, in his political thought, uh, and it culminates in this book with the Boston Massacre. And I think that really does trace an evolution that a lot of Bostonians went through. Uh, we like to think of Boston as being this hotbed of protest, but throughout the 1760s, when these protests began in earnest, most people remained loyal to the crown. 
uh, and they continued to think of themselves not as Americans, not as colonists, but as subjects of the British Empire. Uh, and so Ethan's very typical in that way. But I also think it makes his character arc that much more interesting to have him going through this transformation as well. I've taken some heat for it from readers who feel that I should have made him a loyalist from the start and who find themselves not liking him as much because of it. But frankly, that's a, that's a trade-off I'm willing to make because I think it makes him much more interesting as a protagonist. Let's go to his father's eyes for a moment and talk about your other protagonist, Justice Fearson. And I think, you know, one of the challenges of creating a character that can do magic is that they always have to have a flaw, right? Because if they don't, they could solve all their problems with magic. Like, they can't just be, like, absolutely powerful and there would be no story. Right. So I wondered if you could talk a little bit about Fearson's limits. And, you know, again, I'm, dump- I'm jumping in. So let me take a step back and just ask you maybe to talk a little bit about who Justice Fearson is and, and a little bit about, about his character and the story in his father's eyes. Sure. The, the case files of Justice Fearson actually begins with a book called Spellblind, which came out in January of this year. So I, actually, I had three hardback releases uh, this year. It's been a very busy year for me. And Justice Fearson is what I call a mist, which kind of sounds like werewolf, and, well, it should. So a mist is a sorcerer, somebody who can cast spells and do magic. Um, but every month on the full moon, his magic strengthens to the point where he can barely control it, and his mind weakens to the point where he is suffering from delusions and hallucinations and is really borderline psychotic. And these moon phasings, as they're called, are gradually driving uh, Ethan, I almost said, are gradually driving Justice permanently insane, as they did his father, who is also a wearness, and who is a recurring character in the series. Uh, And so, as one might imagine, with this crazy coming on three nights out of every month and getting stronger each month as it goes along, uh, he's he wasn't able to keep his job as a police officer in the Phoenix, Arizona Police Department, so he's now a private detective. Um, and in a way, I mean, I think there are parallels between Ethan's character and, and Jay's character. Uh, they, um, they're similar personalities. Their spell magic is similar. The magic systems are different. Certainly the times are different. Uh, the mysteries each is involved with are very different. Uh, but there are parallels between the two. And what I like most about writing in the Justice Fearson world is I write these books in first person. And so Jay's um, descent into madness, and particularly there's one scene at the end of the first book in which he really is in the midst of one of these moon phasings and is, is fully delusional. Um, writing them in first person uh, is an incredibly visceral experience for me as a writer and I hope for my readers as well. Uh, and in his father's eyes, Jay is forced to kind of confront his, his father's psychological descent head-on in ways that he never has before because his father is under assault from dark sorcerers who want to hurt him and want to hurt Jay and have a larger, very, you know, sinister agenda. Uh, and so that's kind of the setup for, 
for the second novel in the series. I guess you've kind of outlined some of the, the limits that he faces. The moon phases, you know, affect him in this detrimental way. And he's also looking at, he can see his end, you know, where he's headed when he looks at his father. And um, I, I think, I, I wonder about those choices, you know, why you were drawn to those in particular for Fearson's character. Well, one of the things it does is it provides a ticking clock, which is one of those narrative devices that authors enjoy using because they they ratchet up the tension they they place a time limit on whatever action is being written and they they kind of are it it, it's the lit fuse that the audience can see burning towards the bomb um and so every story theoretically in the fearsome universe can have that ticking that that ticking bomb that ticking clock in it uh, counting down the seconds to where Jay is no longer functional and is in real danger to himself and uh, and from himself, uh, as are those around him. And the permanent insanity is serves kind of the same purpose for the larger character arc. There is that, as you say, there's 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 two levels to this. There's every month he has to deal with it, but also in a life sense he has to deal with it, and he has to start thinking about what can I do to slow down this process or how can I cope with this process better? Uh, and I think that it brings out issues that are often ignored in all sorts of fiction in, in, in this country and in other countries as well about mental illness and the powerful effect it can have not only on the individuals who suffer from it, but those around them. Um, and uh, it also, and I realized this as I was writing his father's eyes last year. I lost both my parents in a very short time span back in the late 90s. Uh, my mom got sick, and uh, her her disease kind of kind of pushed her down into this dementia that was very hard to watch for the last few months of her life. Um, and then my father, who had taken care of her, got sick right after and didn't last long either. And I think that in writing his father's eyes, I was finally able to, in, in a combined way, kind of taking both of their experiences and combining them into one character, I was able to face the grief and the difficulty of watching my mom go through that descent and watching my dad uh, kind of recognize his own mortality after losing his wife uh, in a way that resonates, and, and I don't want to give away too much about the story, but if you've read His Father's Eyes, you know that it resonates very strongly with everything that happens to Jay's father and to Jay's relationship with his father. Uh, throughout the book, there really is this sense of recognizing that mortality and coming to grips with issues in the family life that hadn't been addressed before. And so there was an emotional connection to this book that's really probably more powerful than any other book or story I've ever written. Wow. Well, you know, it's really fascinating how we as humans and, and writers in particular process, you know, their own personal experiences. And it really it really says something to the complexity of the impact that what happened to your parents, you know, finally has emerged. Uh, it sounds like maybe 20 years later in your in your writing where you've been able to have some enough distance to be able to incorporate it in a fictional way to inspire you to to tell a, a different story. But you know, along the same, using the same emotional currents. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And it's, it's a very powerful experience, and it's, it's one of the things that those of us who are fortunate enough to make a living creatively uh, get, get to do uh, with, with our work. And it's one of the things I value most about, about what I do for a living. 
I mean, it's very interesting because both the characters, uh, Kale and Fearson, you know, very different times, but they are both kind of a kind of private investigator. They both use magic. But it seems like the danger that Kale faces is really kind of what, you know, the Salem witch trial kind of danger where people might hang him or something might happen to him from the outside of people afraid of conjurers. And for uh, Justice Fearson, it's an internal uh, threat. You know, it's coming from inside that something inside him could destroy him. Yes, exactly. And, and that's reflected in a way in the, the craft approach I've taken to each book. With the Kale books, because I have to explain certain things historically along the way, and I, I, don't, I don't slip into long expositions or data dumps or anything like that, but sometimes writing historical fiction, we just need a shade of distance between uh, reader and character in order to explain a few things along the way. And so I've written those books in third person. And so that external threat works very nicely with that third person voice. As I said before, with the Fearson books, I'm writing in first person. And that internal threat works much better because I'm writing in that first person voice. And so in this sense, the craft of the book actually reflects the, the plotting of the book. Yeah, your, your choice of which voice, first person or third, uh, you know, fits the, the story. But do you enjoy one more over the other? Or are you, I mean, is there, is there more freedom with one over the other? That's a good question. I, I've really enjoyed writing in first person. But I think it's a voice, I think it's a voice that's being overused a little bit right now. You see a lot of it right now, more than we have in, uh, in fiction in a long time, particularly in, in genre fiction and in, uh, in speculative fiction. And so I really enjoy using it, but I want to be selective in how much I use it. And so right now I'm, I'm actually working on something new. I've just begun a new epic fantasy series. And I'm, I'm in the very early stages of the first book, and you know, I'm, I'm barely a chapter or two in. But I'm writing this in third person, and it feels like that's the right choice for this series. But I'm already looking forward to getting back and writing at least some more short fiction in the Fearson world, because I do miss that first person intimacy. Uh, with my character, and and I know that I'll I'll go back to it as soon as I can. Are you done with Ethan? Is he is it, is this is this the last readers will get to to spend some time with him? No, it's not. I have in mind to write a novella, uh, a kind of a prequel to the entire series that deals with it, Ethan as a character. He's he's not your typical fantasy character, and early on in his life, he was involved with a mutiny at sea, and he served fourteen years at labor on a sugar plantation in Barbados where he was injured and, and nearly lost his foot and he now walks with a limp. So he's a character who carries a lot of personal history and a personal baggage. Uh, and I want to go back and write a novella about that time in his life when he was involved with the mutiny. Uh, and then I plan to release that in a collection of short stories, some reprints and some original about the Thief Taker universe. And then I do hope to get back to writing novel lane stuff in Ethan's world as well. I just don't know when that's going to be. I wrote four books in four years, and I need a, I need a break. Uh, I, want, I don't want this to get stale in any way. He's too important a character to me, and I enjoy the books too much. And so I'm going to take some time away, but this is not the end of Ethan's storyline. I, I refuse to let that happen. Well, I'm sure a lot of, uh, a lot of your fans are really happy to hear that. And Thanks. yeah, and I, and I feel like I mean I don't want to take any more time talking to you because you've got a lot of characters to keep 
to keep <laughs> thinking about. I, I've taken up too much time already, I think. So, so um, le- I want to thank you very much for taking the time to talk with me uh, today. Well, thank you so much for having me on your program. I really appreciate it, and it's great to talk to you. Well, folks, go out there and get yourselves a copy of uh, Dead Man's Reach, which is the fourth book in the Thief Taker Chronicles and His Father's Eyes, which is the second volume in the Case Files of Justice Fearson, and and get the preceding volumes as well, of course. I've been talking with David B. Coe, who also goes by the moniker D.B. Jackson, and... I am Rob Wolf, your host of uh, New Books in Science Fiction and Fantasy. Find out more about us and to hear more conversations with authors, go to our website at www.newbooksinsciencefiction.com and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or other podcasting sites. And, you know, please let people know uh, what you that you've liked what you hear here. I hope you do like it uh, if you've been listening to this interview. And, you know, leave, some, leave, leave as many stars as you can in the the review section or even leave a review and tell your friends and family and bosses and strangers on the street about the podcast. Uh, We've got a Facebook page. We tweet at New Books Sci-Fi. I tweet personally at Rob Wolf Books. Uh, Feel free to follow me. Our logo is by Michael Thibodeau. Theme music is by Michael Aaron. And the editor of the New Books Network is Marshall Poe. Thanks so much for listening. I'll be back in a couple weeks with more.